welcome to another hot and humid and summery wages of cinema. Uh, we are back. I am Jack, and with me, wifely duties, Corey. Oh, but I should call you neighbor Corey after the movie we saw today. Yes. All right. We have. We're actually going to talk about a bunch of movies. Uh, I guess we'll do like what we call the uh, the the minute you know like our two minute movie mile, kind of extended to four minute movie mile. Um, there's also something else that I want to talk about that's sort of like related to movie criticism, but I'll actually leave that for after we talk about our movies. I know it's a little opposite of how we usually do it, um, but I just suddenly felt the need to record after the movie we saw today, and I thought it would be a, a good reason to uh, talk about uh, some other movies that uh, we've seen since we last uh, saw You Find People. Um so, yeah, but it's kind of the opposite of how we usually do it. Um, also, if you hear a little noise in the background, uh, the air conditioner is kind of going on. Um, it's really hot in here. It can't be helped. Yes, I'm sorry. We just, we'll just have to kind of put up with it. Um, but anyway, um, so we'll kind of start now. And I don't want to go on for too long because we could probably spend like an hour talking about this movie, which I've heard some feedback from some of you fine listeners and... Maybe talking too long about a movie can sometimes be a little too long. Uh, you don't know who... if You know who you are who made that criticism. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Anyway, uh, but starting... All right, starting now, we'll go for four minutes. Um, so we saw Won't You Be My Neighbor, the new documentary about the one and only Fred Rogers. Basically, this is Feelings the Movie. <laughs> Yes. Um, before going into this, I think uh, you asked me to get you uh, some tissues, uh, so I got some napkins, and I think that by the end of the movie, you would completely decimate all of them. Well, yes. This movie made me cry early and often, because it does such a great job of capturing the radiance of Mr. Rogers, and the purity of his kindness just shines off the screen. Yeah, now, um, I imagine most of you listening to this have wa- watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood when you were kids. Uh, you know, he was on for 30 years, and I don't know if they kept him on in, like, repeats uh, after he died, uh, which was in 2003. Um, but, you know, you you didn't, you couldn't have grown up with public television and not had uh, Mr. Rogers there. Um, he kind of got overshadowed in my childhood a little bit by Sesame Street. We were talking a little bit about that before we were recording. And I can see why, because, and the documentary points it out pretty well, that he intentionally went for a low-budget aesthetic. Yeah, well, Mr. Rogers believed in very wholesome, very simple but honest children's television and he believed that children were negatively overstimulated by too much visual razzle dazzle or too many stunts or too much slapstick he believed that the force of his kind gentle personality and his honesty and you know his kind of modest sets That was the real heart of children's entertainment. Yeah, in a way, it it talks a little bit about the process, which is always fascinating with, you know, creative people. Um, It also talks about how 
his background informed him in ways that were different than other children's entertainers. Even you know, Jim Henson was one of the great artistic geniuses of his century, but he didn't go to the seminary, um, which, you know, you hear about somebody who, oh, he's like a Christian uh, thinker, and usually you kind of want to curl up, but Mr. Rogers was really what you want in, like, somebody who's a Christian, because he actually practiced what he preached, and he found a creative way to do his, his preaching with all of these uh, different puppets and the things that he would do on his show, which today almost seem like avant-garde. He had such a beautiful soul, and he was so empathetic and so intuitive. Oh, man. And, the, and it's just how he also kind of channeled himself through his puppets. That was something else that made me think of Jim Henson. But with him, he had that little tiger. Was his name Daniel? Daniel. Yeah, and oh, you know, I wasn't really like you as far as you know, sobbing through much of the movie. And I know you were pretty trying to be pretty quiet. I heard you blowing your nose quite a bit during the movie. Um, what got to me though was they showed a clip of you know, and they were trying to show some examples that Mister Rogers, this kind of seemingly milk toast. Uh, guy was really courageous in teaching these lessons to kids, and one of them, he sang a song about with through Daniel, this little tiger puppet, saying, "Am I a mistake?" And to me, oh, that that really got to me. I know I'm going over four minutes, but I don't care. Mister Rogers deserves more than four minutes. He he, that song, it's just, oh, that that because you know that there are kids out there who are watching that show who grew up in probably abusive households, who had parents who didn't love them, who, you know, maybe they came from unloved places. I mean, you still had kids during, like, the 70s and 80s who, you know, maybe they were born to mothers who really didn't want them and maybe saw them as mistakes. So that kind of message, you have that moment, you have that song where Daniel's wondering if he's a mistake and... The woman, I forget who the other woman was on the show, but she was singing with him, trying to lift him up. Oh, that got to me. I, I actually did. I, I, I did kind of tear up a little bit during that. Well, I think Mr. Rogers shows that if your intentions are good and your heart is pure, you can create children's programming that's simplistic but complex at the same time. He, he was really... Um, I feel like he was one of the people, and this is just occurring to me, he probably channeled Marshall McLuhan in a weirdly pure way. You know, Marshall McLuhan, his whole thing, the medium is the message. And he used television, this medium, in such a way where, you know, he wasn't trying to sell you something. He wasn't yeah. telling a child, go out and... Um, and and buy things. Yeah, there's even an interview clip where Mr. Rogers says, other TV, other TV shows look at children as consumers, and the job of other TV programs is to teach them how to buy things and how to mold them into good customers and good consumers, and I don't want to do that. Yeah, he, he was much more pure in that way. Um, if I had one tiny criticism of him, and maybe this is when he was more like old man Rogers. 
you almost want because there was a moment that we both kind of talked about when we were on the car ride home where he maybe like veered had he was dangerously coming close to telling kids like don't have fun well i think he had what we would consider conservative ideas about what is and is not appropriate for children to watch yeah so for example in the documentary the filmmaker has a montage of 80s cartoons and Mm -hmm. nickelodeon and things like the ninja turtles and transformers and uh, you know and how that was kind of corrupting youth maybe in some way or or maybe not even so much corrupting youth just more like this is soulless this isn't really doing anything This is just... Or he talked about how when he first saw television and he saw the very earliest children's shows and they were full of pratfalls and people in makeup, he thought it was really inappropriate. Yeah, you know what just suddenly occurred to me? Because this is is getting a little personal with you guys, but um, like growing up, Corey's told me that her father kind of forbade like Sesame Street in the house but said Mr. Rogers was okay. And now it suddenly occurs to me, though, I wonder if Mr. Rogers criticizing early television and thinking it was just all junk. Your dad would be like, what about Hoppy? <laughs> <laughs> Hoplong Cassidy for, for yes, kids. Yes, I was raised in a house. I watched Sesame Street, but my father was very against it because he said Sesame Street ruins children's attention spans. It also, to me though, growing up, I have to counter that because Sesame Street was just more ambitious and more, uh, it it had a little bit more room for like diverse, uh, things. I feel like it's not, it's hard to compare them because again, they were both, at the beginning of PBS, they, Mr. Rogers started in 1968, Sesame Street started in 69, so they were just doing things a little differently. Like, uh, I mean, obviously in the 70s, Mr. Rogers was there with, you know, tying his shoes and playing with his trains. Sesame Street had, like, psychedelic cartoons <laughs> and, like, songs about numbers and things like that. So it's... And by the way, I should mention, too, in case you're wondering, they never bring up uh, Jim Henson or the Muppets or Sesame Street, which I found a little odd just because, um, you know, it's kind of like having a very in-depth documentary about the Beatles and you don't have the Rolling Stones or Bob Dylan or any of the other people. But anyway, I know it's besides the point. Let's get back. Like, what about, uh, what do you think about, like, the, did you know about the criticisms of Mr. Rogers before the documentary talked about it? No, and I think those critics should feel ashamed of themselves. Yeah. Uh, to give you, uh, and again, without, because hopefully you'll go see the movie and you'll see what we're talking about, but it, there were, right there are writers and also people on TV, <coughs> Fox News, <coughs> Fox News, um, who, went after Mr. Rogers for, A, you know, daring to say that, oh, all you kids are special? How dare you do that? And B, you know, oh, uh, you you know, you're trying to paint, like, this special place of a neighborhood. Oh, also, by the way, you're supporting gay gay people. Well, yeah, there's reference to the fact that there's an editorial from the Wall Street Journal 
and an incredibly obnoxious clip from Fox News criticizing Mr. Rogers for how dare he tell all children you're special and beautiful and lovable just the way you are. And what's funny is early in the movie they mention Fred Rogers was a Republican. Now let me tell you, if you're criticizing Mr. Rogers on Fox News, you're not beautiful and special and <laughs> just the way you are. Oh, I feel like this documentary was made specifically to address people out there right now who are not unique and special. And also, you know, they make it very point blank. Fred Rogers says, I think at one point, um, people who view other people as less than others, that's the real evil. And that's just... That's what we're living in right now. Yeah, they also mention, though, that when Mr. Rogers died, his funeral was picketed by the Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah, that's why I meant about the, the gay yeah. part of it. Oh, the fucking Westboro Baptist. Oh, that's who that was? Yeah, that's who it was. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't know if they had mentioned that. But yeah, it's I like, recognize. And of course, you know, and uh, what I like, though, in the documentary, this is how perceptive, though, it is. Like, the person being interviewed said, you know, I just looked at the kids who were with the parents, and... They're just so miserable and unhappy. And I know Fred Rogers looked at that. So, yeah, if you go see this movie, and you all should, because it's just a really well-made and insightful documentary, as Corey said, you'll feel all the feelings. Oh, my God. So many feelings. <laughs> I know. These are the times where you just are kind of unable to get verbal and you're just kind of like turning into a squish ball i am a squish ball i am a mush pot i am a puddle i am just the world is so impoverished now that mr rogers is gone it's emotionally impoverished absolutely like you know i, I again mr rogers wasn't my favorite thing growing up but even as a kid i knew how important he was and one, one last thing i should mention too is the impact of mr robinson's neighborhood <laughs> Which SNL. I had never heard of until this documentary. Oh my god! Oh, you should you should all watch. Uh, go YouTube and type in Eddie Murphy, Mr. Robinson from Classic Saturday Night Live. Um, that's how I knew that Mr. Rogers though was made an impact on me as a kid because I thought the Eddie Murphy bits where he was Mr. Robinson were brilliant, and I don't think it would have worked for me as well if I hadn't had Mr. Rogers somewhere in my DNA. Um. Yeah, it's just you. We need this kind of kindness and empathy right now in, you know, in our lives. Not just cinema, just out there right now. Yeah. Uh, without going into reasons why, because who knows if you're listening to this now or listening to it years from now, you know. But let's just say, I would be curious to see how Mister Rogers would be handling or talking to children about what's going on with a group of children right now. Yeah. Alright, now let's move on to something that also gave us some feelings. Um, hereditary. Yeah. <laughs> hereditary is the polar opposite experience from this movie. Hereditary yeah. is really good, and you should watch it, but while Won't You Be My Neighbor is all about submerging you in a pile of metaphorical cuddles, Hereditary is about the ruthless destruction of every feeling you have. <laughs> it is about sucking the feelings out of your soul until you are a blackened husk. 
Yes, um, it's 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 a very scary movie, and you know we get a lot of horror movies in Hollywood in the industry. Not as many of them are scary as this. This is um, up there with um, the kind of best of horror that we've had this decade. I feel like this is up there with the Baba Duke and the Witch, and um, in a way, you could say that parts of it are like the Conjuring movies. But I feel like this is it's trying. To, it's trying to take it a little bit more seriously, as far as the fa- fa- familial drama of it. Um, for those of you who don't know the the, the premise, um, it's hard to talk about the movie without getting into a shit ton of spoilers. Yeah, let me tell you, I see a lot of horror movies, so I'm pretty used to their tricks by now. There were things in this movie that genuinely shocked me. Yeah, it. it it's funny because I was talking with a friend of ours the other day, and he said he heard an interview with the director where they asked him about a specific moment in this movie, and he was kind of like, "Ah, well, you know, I wanted to do my my psycho moment." Yeah, I know a moment. Yeah, and I about. think I know what he means. I think I know exactly what he's talking about, and I think he pulled it off. Like yeah. the marketing for this movie really was well done. Like the trailer for this. It gets you interested enough to see the movie. It shows you creepy imagery, which... Oh, God, this yeah. movie is so creepy. The imagery, but, but it doesn't spoil a thing about yeah. what you're getting into. The imagery is very disturbing, and there is not one single cheap jump scare in this movie. No, this is the kind of movie where oftentimes Hollywood horror movies, you'll have literally something will come... You know, the camera might cut to something, and you're like, ah! Yeah. You know, like that type of thing. Like they'll they'll try to direct you to hear something. Like, oh God, when we saw Truth or Dare, yeah, like that was that kind of movie. Like Truth or Dare is like the polar opposite of Hereditary. I don't even want to think about that. Like, and that was probably one of the worst movies of the year. Tony Collette was spectacular. Yeah. See, this is the kind of movie that you think about how horror movies are are kind of disrespected by awards often. And there are maybe just a handful of examples. Tony Collette actually nominated for Best Supporting Actress for The Sixth Sense years ago. And I think she's better in this than she, The Sixth Sense. She deserves an Oscar. This is the type of performance that deserves an Oscar. She has so much depth and range. She fully goes where you don't expect her to go. Um, there are overtones of Polanski uh, I would say through a lot of the movie, like repulsion and not saying too much, the ending Rosemary's Baby comes to mind a little bit. Yeah. But it feels unique. Like it feels like this director I don't know if he's channeling some personal shit in this movie or what. He is, actually. Oh, is I read he? I read an interview with him where he wasn't specific, but he said he went through a time in his life where he suffered a lot of loss in a short period of time. Ah. So he was kind of vague about it, yeah. but... Yeah, so again, it's... This is the kind of horror movie where you get um, things that are... you get The camera will stay on a character for a good stretch of time, and in the background, something will just be there, not doing anything. And you're wondering, what the fuck is that? That's like... As much as we, you know, we talked about it on the podcast months back, and we both kind of enjoyed it. But I feel like this movie does things a lot more honestly than what it was doing. 
Well, it is a lot more of a crowd pleaser. It's the kind of horror. It is the kind of horror movie which we both like, but it is the kind of horror movie where you're still safe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're dealing with a clown. You know, clown has big teeth and you know has the voice of a Skarsgård. This, you're you're dealing with psychological trauma. Yeah. You're dealing with, you know, things like, uh, you don't even know if it might become like a typical horror movie. In the third act, it kind of does, but it's still so well made that you don't yeah. care. So, so go see Hereditary. Yeah, this is a movie, though, that really wants to push you out of your comfort zone. Yeah, which, I don't know if you know heard about this, that um, CinemaScore, whatever that is, gave yeah. us like people gave this a D plus. Well, I've read basically every quote unquote artistic horror movie has a bad cinema score. It's hard for me to trust cinema score because they're getting reactions from people who are immediately seeing the movie in a cineplex environment. So movies like this hereditary or it comes at night, which is another movie we saw and we liked. Yeah. I, I like hereditary more though, but it's, Movies, I, I feel like movies that push people's buttons or in any way are transgressive. Like, even something like The Wolf of Wall Street, that got a C cinema score. Yeah. So I don't trust... Let me just put it this way. I don't trust you people out there well, going to see movies. <laughs> I'm on a movie podcast and I don't trust It's obvious to me cinema score is very lowest common denominator. Yeah. And it's obvious to me that the CinemaScore audience, whoever it is, they do not like to be challenged at all. Although, did I ever tell you, I was part of CinemaScore for a movie once. Oh, maybe you did, but tell me Just recently, actually. When I went to see Love, Simon, I was part of CinemaScore. Ah. For the first time ever. So Interesting. Did they say that we were from CinemaScore? Yes. Oh. Um, and, and that actually, was in the city, right? Yeah, that was in New York City. And actually, when they gave me the form to fill out, the woman said to me, like, this is cinema score. So actually, I was one of the unwashed masses once. Yeah. Now, we should, now to end up, end out this review, I should mention that we didn't have cinema score at our screening, but somebody, as the credits started to roll, said, what the fuck was that? Yeah. <laughs> but then again, give me a simplex. Now, what do you think the cinema score would be for Stalked by My Doctor, um, the revenge of, <laughs> what's her name? Patient's Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I believe we've talked about these movies before, or I might have talked about them with Andrew. Um, Did Andrew see them ever, though? No, no, I believe I just spoke about uh, seeing either the first or the second one. He's got to get on that. Yeah, so um, we're not talking about a TV movie, uh, but that shouldn't stop you from watching Stalked by My Doctor, uh, Janner's Revenge. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to keep coming up with different titles. Um, This is the third in the one and only franchise, I believe, for Lifetime channel. Yeah, Lifetime does not franchise as a rule. Usually what Lifetime does is they just rip off their own movies. (laughs) So... (laughs) So instead of making, like, a sequel to, like, like, Evil Babysitter, they make, like, twisted, like, twisted, uh, 
um, sitter or something. Yeah, so instead of, if you make a movie called Evil Babysitter, instead of making Evil Babysitter 2, you make a movie a year later that's basically just a ripoff and call it Dark Babysitter. <clears throat> yeah, now, there are reasons for this, and there's also a reason why Stalked by My Doctor is the way it is, because a lot of these movies just have bad actors. They don't have good yeah. actors in them. A lot of the time, you tell me you don't even finish watching them because they're so boring. Yeah, now the problem is, I personally like bad movies with hammy acting. I don't like bad movies with flat acting. Which is where we get, though, to Eric Roberts, yeah. who is an amazing actor, yeah. and is the guy who might even make Stalked by my doctor for yeah. a possibility. So Eric, this is this is the Sharknado of <laughs> Lifetime. So Eric Roberts is legitimately a very talented actor, and he's very committed to these movies. Like he doesn't act like he's above being in a movie like this. No, he. That's the thing that makes it work is that he and the other cast members, they're really going for this premise of. You know this kind of sadist. You know this doctor who just has a thing for these young women, and <laughs> and finds some creative ways to try and stalk them. Yeah. So basically, in each movie, the good doctor falls in love with a patient. Well, that's the first two. In the third movie, he's trying to go straight by becoming a medical professor and leaving the practice of medicine. Now, let me ask you this: Do you think that he's still crazy? In this movie? Yes, I think he's still crazy. He's yeah. crazy in a different way. And do you think that the movie is trying to almost cheat, though, in a way? Because maybe by now they think, like, oh, the audience likes uh, Dr. Albert, uh, whatever his last name is, Beck. too much. Beck. People like Dr. Beck too much. Um, now we need to try and make him a little more likable. So instead of him just doing, like, having crazy flip outs and being his sinister self, he's actually kind of nice through a lot of the movie, but then has, like, Hawaiian shirt double <laughs> Dr. Beck. Yeah, so, Stalked by My Doctor 3, my big criticism is that he doesn't have as many fun flip-outs where he talks to himself and screams and freaks out. Instead, he talks to an alter ego of himself who is always wearing a Hawaiian shirt and carrying a cocktail. You know what's funny? It just suddenly occurred to me while we're sitting here. I saw a movie on HBO in the 90s that had this exact type of framing. It was actually the first time I knew who Marilyn Monroe, Monroe was. Because there was a TV movie in the 90s that had Mira Sorvino and I think Ashley Judd. Um, it was called Norma Jean and Marilyn. Uh -huh. And in the movie, it's like we're following Mira Sorvino as, uh, you know, it's the Marilyn Monroe story. But it's like as she becomes Marilyn Monroe, Norma Jean is like her double who keeps talking to her. And, like, kind of criticizing her life choices. <laughs> like, you know, she marries Arthur Miller, and Norma Jean tells Marilyn, oh, so now you're training in spaghetti and pasta for matzo ball soup. You know, because of <laughs> Joe, Joe Maggio. For some reason, that sticks out in my head. I can't remember useful things in life, but I remember quotes from Norma Jean <laughs> and Marilyn. Um, I love your beautiful mind. Thank you. But um, my point is, I, I, I somehow... 
this isn't like an original gimmick, and that might be why I was still entertained by this movie. Uh. Um, there's almost even two. I kind of called this that there's a touch of vertigo yeah. to the movie because it involves like double crossing and stuff in a way I won't get to here. I did enjoy the WTF musical, Sam. Oh yeah, which is, yeah. Um, a blatant ripoff of La La Land. Yeah, that was odd. The, the The director of this movie, who did the first talk by my doctor, decided to try to pay homage to La La Land. What? So, I would say stalked by my doctor three. I did enjoy it, but I also felt like. Doctor um, Eric Roberts was a little too reined in. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, now, um, talking about things that are not reined in. No, nah, I don't know if I have a good transition for that. Um, do you have much to say about Ocean's Eight? Not really. Like we went over the four-minute movie mile on all our other ones. We can do two minutes we'll for this one <laughs> by spending like two minutes on Ocean's Eight. I, um, no, it's, I don't think you, you and I have that much of, like, a attachment to this franchise. You probably even less than me. Because I've seen the first two Oceans movies multiple times. I actually kind of like the second one the more times I watch it. I kind of feel it's underrated. This movie... I don't know, is there much there that really brings, like, grabs you and brings you in, though? Well, I would say... I saw Ocean's Eleven once in my college dorm room 14 years ago, probably, or 13 years ago. I didn't see Ocean's Twelve. I saw Ocean's Thirteen in the movie theater with you when it came out, and I liked it. So, And now you'll probably have seen, you'll probably just, you'll probably never watch this movie again, right? Yeah, so the thing with Ocean's Eight is that as you watch it, you'll be entertained. It's entertaining enough. There are a few, like, funny lines, but there's nothing really distinctive or memorable or shocking about it. Yeah, that's really the main thing I would point to as well. It's, uh, you know, I would say that the cast is all pretty strong. Um, I especially thought Anne Hathaway was having a lot of fun playing, like, this evil character. Not evil. She's just very selfish and self-involved. But... And I would say it also doesn't follow the same problems of Ghostbusters 2016, which tried to do, like, say, like, oh, no, we're not doing Ghostbusters at all, and they were all doing Ghostbusters. This, at least, is part of the Oceans universe, which I kind of thought was fun, but, you know, you could see it or not see it. That's my review. It's fine. Sometimes movies don't need to be great or bad. It's just fine. Um... Same thing, I w- I'll just spend a couple minutes myself telling you about Superfly, okay. which I just saw uh, not too long ago. I know I didn't go that much in depth with you because, well, there are actually things about the movie that I don't like. This is the kind of movie where characters are driving at night and have a conversation in the car, and you think, all right, just keep your cameras inside the car, show them having this conversation, maybe there'll be some drama, but this, guy, but this fucking director who goes by the name Director X. <laughs> Uh-oh. He's been using Brand X. <laughs> <laughs> Just 
shoot your name, bucko. Yeah, are you that ashamed of your project that you have to use X like you're the fucking Donald Sutherland character from JFK? Oh, we should do 80s all over crossover and talk about Alan Smithy. Well, well, no, no, no. That's different, though, because yeah, Director X is him being all cool and hip. He's not taking his name off the movie. Uh, yeah. But, um... But no, it's if you've seen the original Superfly, that had real cool points to it. Like that was a movie where I actually just found this out. Like they got like the, the like the car in the movie that the main character drives. They borrowed from an actual pimp, and you know he he's the original movie he's smacking hoes and dealing drugs and you know got like long unafroed hair in this movie. Uh, I don't know. It it finally doesn't really kick in and become interesting until the second half because that's where you get these corrupt cop characters, and that's where the like you actually are a- the movie was able to put a message into it. It didn't force it that much, but it showed it just enough so that by the end of the movie, a particular character gets their comeuppance, and it's so satisfying. And not just you know outside the movie. Seeing a character like the villain in this get his comeuppance, it, it I would I, let me put the, I wish that I had been there in a black audience because they would have just gone. It would have been like watching Django when he like gets to whip like the slave masters for the first time. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I don't think you would have liked it that much. It doesn't have the fun of Black Dynamite. Obviously, it's not that it's not self-aware like that. This is try. This is like Black Dynamite if it was playing it straight. Yeah, I don't anticipate seeing this movie. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, yeah, which is a shame because there are some decent things in it, but it's just it's shoddily made. And I was about to say with that car scene, characters are having a conversation, and the director feels the need to cut outside the car to show it driving as the characters are talking, and then go back into the car. Like, we no don't reason. know that they're driving? No, yeah, exactly. Like, we need to show off your cool car. Hey, we already saw your car. <coughs> it's just a lot of haphazard editing, it feels like. <coughs> has, this are, has short product, post-production do schedule. Do you know Director X's other movies? No, I think this might be his first movie. Oh. He Actually, I found out he directed the Hotline Bling video. Did you ever see that? By Drake? I think so like i know i've heard the song <laughs> that's where he's that's where he's like dancing by himself in like the colorful cube i, th- I feel like you yes. might have seen it what's great though i've th- seen the memes from it yeah you you saw the parody where they have uh the little dwarf from uh twin peaks yeah dancing the hotline bling <laughs> and i've seen memes from it that show drake's face and- <laughs> yeah so I've seen it memed, even if I haven't seen the actual video, which I probably have, but I don't really listen, as you know, in the year of our Lord 2018, when there are so many podcasts to listen to, I just don't listen to a lot of music, so I'm really not on the cutting edge. Yeah, yeah, this is true. Um, but anyway, uh, going back to, to movies, uh, yeah, we're there, I'm trying to think if there's anything else, uh, was there anything else that we've seen recently that's worth talking about, or... I don't know. I don't hmm. think so. I don't think so, yeah. Um, yeah, 
I guess that's, uh, well, we already spent way much time talking about Solo, so no more about that. No. Well, I wanted to bring up, though, now that we've, uh, we've talked a little bit about some new movies that we've seen, um, I don't know if I've talked to you with, with you about this, so now maybe is a good time. Yeah, this is a mystery topic that you're springing okay. on me. Well, I read, I, I was reading this thing on Twitter the other day about, and it, I guess I went down a, t- a little bit of a rabbit hole, but not too much of one. Because uh, apparently, this goes back actually to Ocean's 8. A couple of the, the cast in that, or a few of the people, thought, you know, they were, the, you know, they saw that the movie got lukewarm reviews, and they kind of said that, you know, male critics weren't being fair. And this kind of connects with another thing that happened recently where uh, Brie Larson was giving a speech at some event, I forget what. And was kind of decrying the lack of of uh, more women and and also like black women critics and you know anybody that's not white male you know like you know I want I don't want to hear what and she one of the lines she said was I don't want to hear what a white man has to say about Wrinkle in Time I want to hear what you know you know this person has to say and I had I, I there was some back and forth on Twitter that I was seeing about this and also on Facebook. Um, in my in the movie group that I'm in on there, people were kind of going back and forth about it, and mostly people were like, "No, this she's just kind of wrong about that." And I was kind of a, a couple of different minds on this. This idea of bringing in other critical representation voices into movie criticism, because yeah, absolutely, there should be more women and black and you know black critics and black women critics or other other voices obviously but at the same time i still think that you unless if you're dealing with someone like rex reed or armand white or maybe you know maybe there are a couple other critics like that i i think most critics try to be fair to movies generally speaking i don't know like do you think that there's like if you if this idea of like, oh, you know, now it's not enough that we should, you know, we should get more, you know, not white filmmaker, white male filmmakers. Now we need more not white male critics. Well, I picked up some of this conversation on Twitter myself. Okay. Probably not as much as you, because I think you follow more film people than I do. But I did pick up a few people who were talking about this, and it reminded me of, um, I immediately jumped to the political science place oh, really? and the scholarly literature on whether women are better represented, say, in Congress by female representatives, whether if you're black, you're better represented by a black member of Congress than a white member of Congress. Right. So that's what I immediately jumped to, which was probably like a stupid place to jump because obviously um who represents you in government it's a lot more important than who writes your film critic who writes your film criticism but the scholarly record on in political science about the extent to which descriptive representation matters like whether you get better substantive representation if you get better descriptive representation. Right. It's kind of mixed, and it's a very conditional, well, in some respects you do, in some respects you don't. I feel like... I doubt there are many film critics 
who are deliberately discriminatory because they're white men. Yeah. But I can also imagine that if film criticism is a monoculture, you might miss things. Yeah. So I could get the idea that there might be blind spots or things that you might not pick up on if virtually all film critics are white men. Yeah. And I remember... Even though I didn't really agree with him about the movie, I remember when Gene Demby from Pop Culture Happy Hour on NPR was savaging three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yeah, Gene Demby is, uh, she, that's a woman, right? No, it's a man. Oh, okay. And was he? He's black. And okay. he was, ref- he was reflecting on the fact that this movie had this amazing, like, 90 plus percent Rotten Tomatoes score. And he said, the reason why this movie is so critically acclaimed is because almost every film critic on the Rotten Tomatoes score is white, and they're just insensitive to how racist this movie is. And I'm black, so I'm more sensitive to it. Now, so... Yeah, I I, kind of get that, too. But it's, I think it's... Obviously, yeah, because I heard a lot of criticism. But I don't think it was just from black black people. I heard it from some white people too. I get that maybe there's just this maybe Rotten Tomatoes has just kind of soured a lot of things on film criticism. And then you also get some of the conspiracy people out there too who and I've maybe this is more to do with like I, I, this happens on Double Toasted where sometimes they'll review like a Marvel movie or a DC movie and they'll be like, "Oh, people listening be like, "Oh, you were paid to by the studio to say that." <laughs> And, so, like, sure you were. Marvel needs a lot of help in getting their positive <laughs> reviews. I think it's hard to prove for any one individual movie the response to this movie is systematically biased yeah. by the lack of diversity in film criticism. Be- yeah, because the problem for me is when Brie Larson talks about that, and I don't know, maybe... I get the kind of, uh, like, the general point she was trying to make, and I'm sympathetic to that, but using Wrinkle in Time is not a great example, because A Wrinkle in Time is just kind of objectively a mess as a movie, and I'd be curious if, okay, maybe a lot of white critics did go after it. Now, obviously, on Twitter, maybe it's just because I follow Eva DuVernay, and I see, like, she retweets or, you know likes the people the regular people are like oh this movie touched me so much but i would kind of wager that there were all there are probably also women and even black women who came out of wrinkling time and were like what well i think another point and this was touched on by matt solar sites when he addressed where he kind of addressed this issue where he said that any movie that is popular enough to like make it into you know wide that's uh-huh. widely seen there's gonna be such a broad range of experiences yeah. that you can't really generalize so he said that he talked about how in his own writing he would 
refer to things earlier in his writing career as like mm-hmm. man movies and like women movies yeah. and he had to stop doing that because even if a movie is more popular yeah you told me male about this film goers and female film goers there's always gonna be yeah well we were just uh well i know he was referencing uh goodfellas which we we just rewatched that movie yeah um last week and uh you know, I've talked about Goodfellas so much on this podcast, that's why I didn't include it in the two-minute movie mile, but, you know, you love that movie almost as much as I do. And, you know, you're not really into that kind of, you know, necessarily always into that kind of gangstery, macho movie. Yeah. But, you know, when it's made that well, who cares? Now, on the flip side, you get a movie like Ocean's 8, which, and also this is all the kind of similar thing with Ghostbusters 2016. Now, actually, no, I should say those are two different examples. Because I think Ocean's 8, ultimately, that, the critical reception is lukewarm. And I think it's deserved. And it's also going to be the kind of thing where people aren't really going to remember the movie in a month. Whereas Ghostbusters 2016, I feel like that really set a lot more people off. And that felt a little bit more like that. Oh, that's what, that, because that's when you get the fanboys and fanboys are fucking terrible. I'm sorry. You fanboys out there who decide to go after Kelly Marie Tran and yeah. force her off of social media. You know, you are everything. Fred Rogers despises. <laughs> you are why Fred Rogers need to exist because you know, you're awful. <laughs> you know, it, you know it's it, it, so. I don't know. Like I just because I was seeing a couple of people who were even going after Brie Larson, being like, "Oh, she's being such like a social justice warrior, calling for like, oh, your white male critics are, you know, your opinion doesn't count." I love how that's an insult. You care about social justice. <laughs> Work on your insult game, ladies and gentlemen, when you bust out social justice warrior. Yeah, but and, and uh, sorry. So yeah, my my like fortune cookie statement on this is, of course, it would be better for the film critic community to be more diverse, but I think it's hard to prove definitively when talking about an individual film. The response to this movie would be different if the critic pool was more diverse. So it's something that I believe in a general sense, although it's not like I can point to empirical evidence to say, oh, the reaction to this movie would definitely be different. Now, there is some empirical support for the idea in political science that descriptive representation matters, but the relationship is a little too complicated well, yeah, for well, me to go into in a film podcast. Well, that's also, well, it's also the thing of, um, you know, uh, film is also, film is meant to be about empathy a lot of the times. Like, you're mm-hmm. living through these stories and seeing other people's experiences. So, again, what, t- white men you know, you're watching a movie about women or this or that, if it's really well done enough, you'll actually be able to experience their lives and their choices and their experiences. And, you know, that's a really great thing. Whereas I think political science, when it becomes a little more intellectual, 
you kind of lose a little bit of that emotional part of it. Yeah, it's frankly, it's pretty stupid to make the comparison I made. It's just no, no, I, I get when it. When I read about this and I thought about descriptive representation in film criticism, my political science brain just jumped to, oh, well, all the things I've read about whether or not yeah. having a di more diverse pool of lawmakers creates better political outcomes. Because politics is also a field that's dominated by white men. Yeah. And now, at the same time, I also don't want to go into the thing of, oh, well, a woman made this, or you know, a black person made this, or a black woman made this, I need to automatically like it because of that. Yeah. Because that could also be a bit of like the danger going in the other way of, well, you, you're feeling pressure to really like this thing. You know, and I, I always kind of wince at that too. That's why, you know, I tried to go into Wrinkle in Time as fair as possible and left feeling the way I did. And you were kind of the same way. Um, and I don't know. Uh, the moral of the story is uh, go see. Uh, now, I have a question for you, though. I mean, we could all say in an ideal world, it would be better if film criticism as a medium was more diverse. Oh, of course. But my question for you is, you know, a lot of traditional media sources are dying and a lot of film critic and and in a lot of ways like I think film criticism as a commercially viable enterprise is kind of dying. Oh, it's already been that way for a while. So, like I read that that was why uh that guy C. Robert Cargill, who used to be Massaworm on Equal News, and uh, he was on Spill. He's he's now a screenwriter and an author, and he said that part of the reason he switched to do that was because he saw film criticism was not going to be something he could make a living off of for much longer. Well, I remembered a few months ago when I was coming home from work, I didn't have my typical reading material, and for some reason, I don't remember what reason, I couldn't just scroll on my phone. Oh, I know where you're yeah, going with so this. Yeah, so I bought an issue of Entertainment Weekly, and it was the first time I had read Entertainment Weekly in years, probably. Um, it is a garbage publication now. Like, it's really not even fit to line a cat's litter but, box. But see, Corey, you're and the problem because you stopped buying issues. <laughs> you when, I opened, when I opened Entertainment Weekly, there were literally no film reviews. Right. There was a chart that had a list of movies and grades next to the movies, but there were literally no movie reviews. See, that to me is much worse than Rotten Tomatoes because, you know, I know you can say that, well, people immediately just look at the score of Rotten Tomatoes and decide, oh, I'll go see this or not. But Rotten Tomatoes at least gives you that entire group of reviews. So, you know, it, I know you can't, you can't force someone to read a review or not. Um, and granted, maybe a lot, of, a lot of the reviews that Rotten Tomatoes posted, you know, you get like... I remember somebody had a website, and, I'm, and I apologize if you're listening, so please, you know, you, you can write us at wagersim at gmail.com if you want, but... I remember, like, on Rotten Tomatoes, it was the first time I heard this critic named Willy Waffle. Huh. And he had Willy Waffles, you had Waffle Reviews. It's like, well, all right, who the fuck are you, Waffle Review Man? Um, 
So, uh, so I'm wondering too, as traditional as what we call quote unquote traditional film criticism dies um, as an actual money generating mm -hmm. entity, I wonder if that will make the film criticism of the future more or less diverse. Uh, like as yeah. the industry dies, do you think they will be even more risk averse and even more um, fearful of empowering diverse voices? I, I don't know. Or do you think some outlets as a last ditch t attempt at survival might try to employ a broader array of critics? Um. I mean, they could certainly try to, to hire other voices. and But I think that probably what's going to happen is you'll get websites and places that will try to cater more specifically for that. So you'll get like sites that will be more focused on, here is the woman's point of view. Here's the black woman's point of view. Here's the Hispanic woman's point of view. Here's the transgendered point of view. Here's, here's whatever. Um, you know, And a lot of things I think will splinter off, kind of like how our media is splintered off in a lot of things. Now you have like, you know, hundreds of shows and movies that you can check out at any time. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because for a long time, the, what well, the person who was considered the most powerful voice in film criticism was a woman, Pauline mm -hmm. Kael. So, you know, who's to say, I mean, well, that even gets into the broader philosophical criticism of, what is film criticism for? Because yeah, like do you like do you have to hear that the voice in the review is from a woman's point of view? Like, what if the person just wants to write about whether the movie was good or bad? Because I know, not that I'm a film critic, but whenever I give my opinion on a movie, I'm trying to communicate my unique individual opinion only. I'm just trying to say this is how I feel about the movie. Now, I'm sure there have been times in my life that my opinion has been shaped by the fact that I am a woman, but it's usually not apparent to me. I think that knowing, like, if you were somehow, I think you, if you were a man, you probably would still dislike Call Me By Your Name just as much. <laughs> what I would say is, not, again, not that I'm a film critic, but I would say the majority of movies I watch, I can't see my... I can't feel my own gender shaping how I feel about the movie. Yeah. No, now, that doesn't now, mean it's not happening. Yeah, it doesn't mean... It could be something where it's happening and you're not... Aware of it. Yeah. Now, also, Brie Larson's point might just be hire more women. And absolutely, I am for that. I, I don't want to give off the impression like, oh, she's so wrong... I just think that what she was saying and what the Ocean's 8 actors were saying, it. I think that it's you just need to sometimes just go on a case-by-case -case basis to see who has more valid opinions or not. Because, you know, there is a certain black male critic out there whose opinion is very un invalid. Yes. Who we, you know, you don't even need to say his name. He's almost like... <laughs> this this is kind of a side note, but when <laughs> on Twitter, yes. somebody, you know, I'm talking going with this. 
like Gotti, uh, which just came out. I haven't seen this yet, but apparently it got a zero percent Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> and somebody said on Twitter, "Oh no, somebody put out the bat signal for Armand White." <laughs> <laughs> Like, they had the little meme from Batman Returns where the bat signal goes on and Michael Keaton yeah. stands up and well, rises Armin out of his Well, Armin White is a troll and a hack. <laughs> He's, like, the kind of guy that helped to lower Moonlight from, like, 100% well, like to 99 or I don't even or think Armin White's opinions are sincere a lot of the time. Like, I think he's a troll. I think and- he's somebody who is just... He, he is literally word salad. He, he is somebody who will just spew out lots and lots of... I'm very proud. <laughs> he, I know you didn't watch this show, but for those of you who watched Fraggle Rock, <laughs> Armored White is the trash heap from tra- fra- Fraggle Rock <laughs> as a folk. You should tell the people about how Armin White actually tweeted back at you oh when my you God. criticized him on Twitter. Oh, Twitter. this was years and years ago. I don't even know if you could find the tweet, but I was... He, I don't even remember what I was tweeting at him about. Everything he writes is garbage. Yeah, so it I, I, wrote, I wrote something. I wrote something to him where I was criticizing him or trying to point something out. Again, this was so long ago. I don't even, I don't even know if I could find the tweet that I sent to him. But I remember his response because he tweeted back at me saying, Oh, look at you laying down the truth bombs. Which was an awesome response, actually. I have to say... Armin White's response to you on Twitter is probably the best thing he ever wrote. <laughs> because, oh, look at you dropping those truth bombs is kind of funny. You're <laughs> laughing at my expense. I'm not laughing at your expense. <laughs> See, now I'm feeling some feelings, too. And I'll need to talk about them. You're beautiful and special just the way you are. <laughs> yes, alright, I, I need to get up. This I would say, though... To, to close out, the whole changing the diversity of the film critic pool, I think that's an unproven hypothesis, an untested hypothesis. Yeah, I think so too. I think that blaming I that can't bl- say they're right or I can't say they're wrong. Let if me I'm just, being honest, I don't know whether let, they're let me just put the truth. let me just put this way to the Ocean's Eight actors. Your movie was directed by a white man, so you know, hold up on saying that people are going after your movie because they're biased against female-led movies. That's all I mean to say. I mean, I just don't know. I mean... No, I don't know either, but that's why I think that the conversation is kind of fascinating because it's something that feels like, you know, we're entering in a new territory where oh, hey, maybe we should have more women in entertainment, and maybe we should have more women directors and more I women producers. I definitely feel the absence of female creators when I watch movies. Like, I definitely feel... I do, too. ...the male domination of the creative side of Hollywood. Yeah. Me, personally... I never picked up in my reading a feeling of, like, the male domination of film criticism the way I am sometimes very aware of the male domination of film creation. Yeah, I mean, and ultimately, a lot of film critics will get into becoming film critics because of a white man, and his name is Roger Ebert. So, enough said. Um, Now, we're going to take a break and come back 
uh, and this will be a multi-part episode, I think. Uh, make sure to visit us at Wages of Cinema on Facebook and Twitter and wagesofcinema at gmail.com. Uh, when we come back, um, we're going to watch and talk about the Fifty Shades of Grey movies. We're watching all of them, baby. Yeah, so we're going to tease that for you. And maybe we'll have another part to this episode. I'm not sure yet. So uh, stay tuned as uh, we hopefully have satiated some of your movie listening for now. And uh, we'll be back. <laughs>